Gage, yes, you're Stanford. This is the Henry George Program. I'm Mark Molyneux. I'm joined by co-host Jacob Schwartz-Lucas. This is a show where we look for practical answers to the Bay Area housing crisis and other questions of economic volatility worldwide. Today on the program, we have Christine Peterson. She is the founder of the Foresight Institute, which looks into future technology. She once coined the phrase, open source. On the 2nd of December, they'll be holding Vision Weekend, a conference with visions of the future. We'll talk about that throughout the show. But without further ado, welcome to the show, Christine. Thank you. It's great to be on. So for people who uh, you know, who you know, hear the name Forsyth Institute, what should they know about what the Forsyth Institute is up to, what it, what it does? We're a nonprofit. What we do is we look at coming technologies, the, especially the big, powerful technologies, artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, uh, longevity, science and technologies, and say to our say, all right, how are these going to impact people? Are they headed in the wrong direction? Are they headed in the right direction? How do we steer, how do we manage that ratio? How do we steer these very powerful technologies in positive directions so that uh, the human impacts are, are are good and are helpful to society to society's goals overall? So. That basically means we can talk about anything we want, and uh, and we do. So, um, so it's a, so it's a very broad charter, basically. Science and technology, where it's going, how does it impact human beings? I feel that's the kind of topics that gets people to you know kind of either fall into kind of the optimistic and pessimist camps. Uh, do you feel that applies to Foresight Institute, or you think it's none of the above? We Foresight's a little unusual in that we look at both uh, positive impact and negative impact. Most nonprofits pick one or the other and then push hard on that, and, and that's understandable. It gives them a very simple branding message to use. But we've always been more balanced, so we've got a mix. We've got, we've got our optimists, we've got our pessimists, we've got our realists, you name it. We have it in our mix, and we like it that way because... That's how you get really valuable discussions, and you, you want everyone at the table. You, know, you don't want to push anything under the carpet. You don't want to hide the negative impacts, and you don't want to forget about the positive impacts. So we, we like that mix. It is unusual. Um, it does mean that our organization is smaller than most because our message is a little more sophisticated and complicated, but, uh, but I've always loved that about our group. It's, um, it, it raises the level of discussion. So, yeah, Christine, why don't you tell us about the, uh, the event that's coming up, uh, Vision Weekend, December 2nd and 3rd? That's right. So that's um, in, uh, in a little under of two weeks up in San Francisco we're, for the whole weekend, December 2nd and 3rd. We will be looking at these issues. We're looking at the big, si- the big technology issues that are starting to ramp up uh, that we're seeing more and more of right now. Um, uh, intelligence, both artificial and uh, brain technologies, longevity, uh, blockchain technologies, and the long term in general, whether it's um, we're, we're looking at things like lunar colonies, cryptocurrencies, you name it, um, all these advanced science and technology developments, we're looking at them, we're debating them, making sure that we understand where they're going and seeing if they need any guidance. Uh, and that's what the Sunday is about. We'll be doing strategy sessions. So it's not a typical conference where everybody sits in the audience and listens and are told what to think by the speakers. Uh, it's very interactive. And, um, and, and then uh, yeah. whenever you talk about these, these technologies, you, first of all, you have to try to envision how they're going to play out. And to do that, you need to use imagination. Sometimes you even pull from things like science fiction scenarios. You know, science fiction writers aren't dummies, most of them. And so when they come up with these scenarios, um, you often, uh, you know, a few decades later, there we are, we're in that scenario. So, um, so first you have to imagine the future. Then you have to think, well, but is this the future we want? Uh, and that leads you right into public policy. So there is, and, and of course, then you end up in politics. <laughs> so... Uh, you know, these, these things are intertwined very tightly, um, and it makes it very challenging, but it also makes it very stimulating. So uh, I find that we, we, uh, we like to pull in people who are thoughtful and are able to handle complex issues. So given that it's called Vision Weekend, what's your vision 
for, for the future. I mean, I, I guess you have to say at what point in the future we're talking about, but what's sort of the big inspiring vision that you have that you'd like to contribute, you know, through, through the Foresight Institute? Well, my, I guess partly because I've been at Foresight since the beginning, and that's been decades now, my vision, it's kind of a, it's a complex one because it's multidimensional. Um, I would say on the one hand, you want to have as much freedom as possible to develop these technologies and push them as far as they can go to benefit humanity and the, uh, the environment, um, the biosphere, uh, and extend the biosphere off Earth, right? Right now, we're in the same situation as the dinosaurs, right? We've got all our eggs in one basket. It's a wonderful planet. We all love the Earth. But uh, just like with the dinosaurs, we're vulnerable if we stay just on one planet. So eventually, we do have to spread off this, this one, one biosphere and, uh, and spread humanity and other parts of the biosphere off Earth. So that's one part of the vision, and it's a positive vision. Uh, so expansion of freedom, expansion of the biosphere. Uh, and then there's heading off the negative scenarios, um, as technology seems to be something that we that in, that is inflicted on us sometimes that we cannot we don't seem to have a choice about what technologies are used uh, and we so I would like it to be the case for example that if some people choose to do brain enhancement and mem- and memory enhancement and uh, these kinds of things which I think will happen uh, I hope it's not something that people feel compelled to do in order to keep up um, or even for some reason have to do it. So so I want to head off these weird negative scenarios, which could happen, um, and, and then maximize the positive scenarios. So that's kind of a long answer, but it's a big question, right? What is the future going to be like? It's going to be, I think it's going to be pretty weird, but I, I'm going to try to try to make sure that there are that we can hang on to the good things. Yeah, so speaking of, you know, just having visions for the future, you're talking about, you know, people in the past, you know, writing, uh, science fiction writers and other futurists talking about how it, how things could turn out. A lot of, of positive visions have inspired people to make, you know, you know policy and, and kind of create their own world to, to match what they see as possible in the future. I've heard a lot of people say we've, we've reached a weird point where dystopias are, <clears throat> yeah, excuse me, uh, dystopias are outnumbering utopias by, you know, an enormous factor. Uh, do you, do you, are you seeing that around, that people tend to kind of find more fun in imagining some sort of Hunger Games hellscape than any kind of positive vision of the future? And, you know, what, what, and do you think, you know, putting new visions out or, you know, have a chance of, of, of turning this tide? I think there's a lot of hunger for positive visions, and I think that's been true for decades now. Um, there used to be more positive visions in science fiction. Now there's a lot of dystopian uh, visions in in science fiction, and uh, I'm not sure why that is. Uh, but I do know that people in general, uh, the general reading the public, uh, they're they're very hungry for positive visions, and I think that's part of why they come to foresight. They recognize that okay, here finally is a positive, coherent vision of the future and, and a pathway to work on it. So, so yeah, there, there's a huge number of dystopian visions right now, and it's understandable if you look at, at politics these days, it's pretty dystopian. Um, but I don't think it has to be that way. I think there are positive visions, and, and we do try to, to bring those out at Foresight. So on the, on this program, it's it's you know either kind of narrowly or, or broadly about economics in general. Economics being, you know, what we do, how we share it. It's a lot of of the human experience. What what do you think are the biggest questions, unknowns, and potentials of of the future for humans and economics? Well, I assume, I hope, um, perhaps that you folks have already had a blockchain speaker on the show. Have you? At least Steve one or two. Yes. Yeah, he, almost, yeah, was, that was his focus, but we've definitely talked about it in a few other contexts. Okay. But well, he, he's the, going to be speaking. Uh, he was at the 2016 Vision Weekend, right? I'm, I'm not sure what his role will be, but for, even if somebody's not a speaker, they're still a major player because, because everybody's a major player at this event. It's that interactive. So um, I think blockchain is going to be very, very big 
going forward. Um, and and it's, it's very much a decentralization technology. It enables people to coordinate and get and, and make things happen economically apart from having to rely on corrupt structures, uh, either 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 ineffective, inefficient, or corrupt structures, which uh, which are everywhere in society right now, especially in countries that where corruption is worse than it is in our country. So I think it's going to be a, a, a tremendously a powerful thing, and it's going to cause a lot of big changes. And there, I think in general, they're going to be positive changes. So in terms of, in terms of economics, um, that's, that's one of the biggest ones I see, and I, I think um, it's it's so hard to wrap your head around. I've I've I listened, for example, to a talk by Melanie Swan, who's going to be at the Vision Weekend and is um, is one of our of our panelists there, uh, and she gave her visions for what is going to come from blockchain, and I was just blown away. And this is this is one of those positive visionary things that you were just asking about is there are there positive visions there totally are and and melanie has them in the blockchain space and that's about the most visionary blockchain talk i've ever heard yeah i mean i think people kind of say oh blockchains that's about currency that's it i mean they're a very multifaceted technology that can really change really more than currency just the entire idea of like what is a decentralized truth what does that mean in in a in a future civilization I think uh, cryptocurrencies uh, may someday be seen as, as a small function of the blockchain. You know, it happens to be an early application, but blockchain technology is so much broader than that. And I think we need to start thinking about things like you know, smart contracts and um, basically re-implementing the whole financial world on this new basis and uh, circumventing the current huge organizations which are inefficient and sometimes corrupt. So um, this is going to be very disruptive, I hope in a good way. Certainly sometimes it will be in a good way. Um, it, but it's going to be disruptive to current employment patterns, and that is a little bit scary. So we were talking, yeah, how good things can lead to bad consequences. Uh, I've heard you talk about, you know, longevity is, you know, it's great, great when people live longer, but when civilizations change, it can really lead to a lot of stresses and how people how people share things. You know, when you assume you don't live past fifty, most people don't. It's very different than when people might live, who knows, close to forever. Uh, could you care to speak about that? Right. I, I mean, also just one one thing is everybody's talking about how well-off Jeff Bezos is at the moment, right? But um, you know, if you imagine that uh, Mark Zuckerberg is going to live a very, very long time if some of these like longevity uh, technologies in, improve at the rate that I think, you know, probably Christine is is hoping. Uh, think about the compound interest that someone like him will acquire, and and, and the kind of political power that you can you can have if you live that long. Well, that's right. I think our society and its rules are currently set up with certain expectations uh, about how long someone will live. And, and obviously, even in these very early days of extended health span, uh, where people are living a bit longer, we're already seeing uh, big problems financially in terms of things like um, the, the Medicare program, Social Security, where you know, those were set up with a certain with certain assumptions regarding the ratio of older to younger people and how long these people are going to live, and those those assumptions aren't holding anymore. We have, the ratios are wrong. The length of time people are living is 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 longer. All those old calculations are now seen to be incorrect, and they're not working. So those those funds are going to run out of money, and we don't have enough young people to to bulk up those funds and. Too, too few young people are available to support each older person. So the old assumptions, the old public policy assumptions, ha are, they're wrong. They're inaccurate, and they have to be redone. Um, the good news is that as we improve the health span, um, the fact that people will not be able to go on full retirement at age 65 will not be a problem. They'll still be able to work. So they'll be healthy, um, and people who are truly healthy 
don't necessarily want to retire. They, if they have a job they enjoy, and many, many people do have a job they enjoy, that's how they get their identity, they don't necessarily want to retire full-time. Um, they may want to work part-time, but that would be great for many of us. Many of us would love to be able to work part-time. So, so that's just one of these assumptions that we've made that public policy is based on, and we're going to have to throw that out the window. It's just inaccurate. It's wrong. And full retirement at 65 on the public purse can't happen. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it takes a lot of assumptions of just base. You know, why do we take of in all the world the forty-hour work week is this given? You you you're an adult. You work a forty-hour work week. You eventually retire. There's all sorts of different ways we can structure how we live and how we how we work. Uh, I, I think the only real obstacle is not so much physical obstacles. It's no Malthusian disaster of, you know, the end of of resources. It's really just for can we all manage to figure out what we can do? And I guess that's, to me, the biggest question. How do we find out how to cooperate in a, when the rules change? That's right. And this example you give of why does the, the work week have to be 40 hours, um, part of that, again, is public policy, uh, outdated public policy. It's, um, it, it was an, int- an, an interesting idea, and it was a, a sexy idea to say, well, we're going to have... Uh, for full-time employees, we'll have certain benefits, and those will not be taxed. So that drove us to put things like health insurance as an employee benefit for which you had to work at least 30 hours a week. And and now we're kind of stuck in this situation where people get their health insurance that way. Um, so it's a, and, and that was directly derived from public policy and tax policy. So tax policy... Can, can make or break many things, and, and it's broken in so many different ways. Uh, the marriage penalty hurts people who get married. Um, there's, there's, you could make a list of ways in which tax policy is screwed up, and, um, and I, think, I think we have to do that. It's, it's not, for example, it's not Foresight's primary focus to look at tax policy, but whenever you look at public policy, you end up in places like that. And yes, it's political, but the fact is these things are broken and somebody has to fix them. Yeah, I mean, I think we, we, we are tend to be in a, kind of a fringe place of feeling like tax policy should always, always, always have elegance in it. And I think if you look at the health care, you know, why is the U.S. the only place that has this really inefficient system where it's tied to your employer? In World War II, they... Had a, they froze wages across the board uh, because there was labor changes because of the war going on, and people said, "Okay, how can we get around this and, and allow us to have competitive wages? Oh, we'll give out give out health insurance," <laughs> and that was like they made like, "Okay, this is a quick fix. This is good enough. It's going to work. Uh, good enough for government business." Uh, and yeah, I mean, and we're still living the consequences over 70 years later. It's just, it really makes you realize perhaps we should always think about the long-term consequences of any tax implication. Because, um, yeah, you can, it can really put a bottleneck on how the future works. Yeah, and, and that's what we did with health insurance. And I think um, if we had it all to do over again, I think, and if, peop- if people back then had seen where we would end up, I think they they would have they would not have taken that path, but um, but here we are. So, and it's a mess uh, as we've seen. So many people have tried to fix to fix health insurance, and because of this entrenched uh, tax policy, it, it it sort of can't be fixed in a way. Um, it's it's very very hard to change. So yes, if it's it's super critical. Uh, tax policy is super critical, and you have to look ahead decades. And, and I guess politicians just, they're not, they don't have the incentives to do that. But the rest of us who do have those incentives, um, we're going to have to do it for them. Yeah, I mean, it's the, the, the I guess inertia is just, you, it's hard to really, you know, it's it's easy to say inertia will always win, but the future always wins too. I'm just reminded of the parable of the old Ealing Studios comedy, uh, The Man in the White Suit. Alec Guinness, he, he invents a new kind of suit that you know never needs to be cleaned it works forever you can you know just one suit works forever and then all the uh, you know cotton mills and all the workers just suddenly he is he is the enemy and they're just, they're like actually after him with pitchforks you know it's mm-hmm. people don't like good news a lot of times mm-hmm. and it's kind of weird why should we you know build a society in which 
good news by the future should make us feel scared. Uh, it's I think it, it kind of leads to questions we need to answer first. Well, it does, especially the employment issue. Um, you know, are there jobs? Are there? We can see this automation coming. There's no question about it. We've already seen a lot of it, and it's it's uh, it's speeding up. And so, where are the jobs coming from for the folks who are being automated out of their current positions? Um, are there jobs for them? And I don't I don't have easy answers for this. And it's a it's a it's a big concern here in the in Silicon Valley. The a lot of leaders are very worried, and that's what's leading to these calls for consideration of things like um, guaranteed basic income, which. You know, a decade ago, people would have laughed, but now it gets serious discussion. It's a, it's a very layered problem, though, right? I, you know, Mark was just telling me about how he was discussing um, some conversations on Twitter this week where you know, it was brought up that you know, if you create a basic income with these positive intentions of you know, creating a floor, for those people who may be kicked out of their job by automation. Uh, if you don't deal with other issues related to tax policy, you could actually just make everyone's rent go up. We had Matt mm-hmm. Krisaloff from Y Combinator. He's the head of uh, social policy research over there. And you know, he was kind of, to some degree, acknowledging this point as well. Um, these problems are so multi-layered, multifaceted, and it, it, it's it's really not easy to deal with them in isolation, and certainly not over these short time spans that politicians are sort of beholden to, you know, give, given their their short terms and and the voting box that uh, you know support them, and particularly uh, older people who tend to own property and want to see their home values continue to rise. Yeah, um, that's a big one. And, you know, I, uh, I, I'm kind of torn on that one because on the one hand, I am a California homeowner. I'm, I'm one of the ones who are benefiting from these current policies. Um, on the other hand, I know they're wrong. I know they're unfair. I know they're immoral, actually. Um, they're especially unfair to younger people. So... You know, even though it would hurt me personally, financially, to see them change, I know they should change, um, and I hope they do change because uh, the current setup is, is is just wrong. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 the big question of when we go in the future, how can we all be rich? <laughs> and you know, it's in the, California in the past said we can all be rich by all being homeowners, and that's that's one system that didn't work out. And I think you know, if you kind of it takes a real you know, a hundred year, two hundred year, thousand year view to say in a future in which what wealth is really changes, how can we all have how can we all be rich? Um yeah, and I think that's that that really is the big question of, you know, ending you know, really ending need. Because in theory there's no reason we have to have to have need. That's right. And I think that's I think that's the future we're headed for. I think we can get there. But this idea that um that the way everyone will be rich would be to, is to be a homeowner, you know, that never really made sense because what that means is you've got very immobile labor markets. You've, um, and one of the reasons um, that the U.S. has done relatively well is that our traditionally our labor has been pretty mobile. But if you do something like pass what they have in California with this is Prop, Prop 13 where uh, – where you get to keep low property taxes as long as you don't sell your house, that sort of nails people down into their into their the house that they were were managed at one point to buy, but now they can't move. They can't afford to move. They can't afford to sell their house because they won't be able to buy a house that's equivalent somewhere else. So this happens all the time, um, and it's it's a uh, it's. It's just wrong, and, and it, it it should change. It shouldn't it shouldn't have been set up that way in the first place. And I understand why, because pro- property taxes were soaring, and people were frantic to find a way around that problem. Um, but the answer they found, I think, is a I mean, it's a it's a bad answer. 
It makes you. Really it's not just yeah. homeowners either, right? It's also renters because uh, if you happen to get a good deal and be you know, grandfathered in or, or have a long-term lease, uh, even if you get a great job opportunity, say in New York, you may not want to take it because you know you you can never get that apartment back. So instead of making decisions on the basis of where you might be most productive in the economy. Uh, you're making decisions on the basis of, you know, where can I get a plot of land for myself and, you know, keep everyone else off. And uh, you, you even see people not occupying their apartments for large parts of the year just, just because there's a lot of overhead associated with, um, you know, subleasing it or, or something like that. So yeah, it, it slows down all the gears of the economy, doesn't it? It does. And, um, and things like rent control, you know, again, it's it feels good in the short term and it benefits some people. But in the longer term, um, it means that people don't keep the property up. They eventually take it off the market and turn it into condos. And you, then you've lost the rental space, which you needed. You needed those rental units. So it's, you know, so many things in politics feel good in the short term. And then in the long term, you see, oh, my God, this was a big mistake. Well, I think, I mean, if you look at, you know, kind of what works in the real, real aggregate, I mean, it's, you talk about the future, if we don't learn how to share the cities we have now, and in a place that is as progressive and future thinking as Silicon Valley, we do the exact opposite, we do the worst job of sharing anywhere, is, you know, is this going to be the reason we reclaim the deserts and we reclaim the moon and reclaim Mars and go there? Is it because we don't learn to share here? And if we do that, how are we going to learn to share those? I, I think that really it's it's really the same questions over and over again. And, and I kind of see it as a matter of human survival. If we're going to progress and have new new frontiers, how are we going to treat these frontiers and how are we going to share them? I mean, there was plenty of, uh, you know, fertile space in Europe before people fleeing, you know, somewhat of a feudal system there came to the United States, uh, you know, and wanted a, a plot for themselves. But uh, it's sort of like this quote that says, you'll never have enough resources if you don't use what you have efficiently. Um, and so, yeah, like if, if there's one guy that goes to Mars, maybe it's Elon Musk, uh, says, you know, Mars belongs to me then it's not much of an alternative to living in Silicon Valley, right? Because you're, you're still not going to get that uh, homestead for yourself. You're depending on his charity to you in a certain sense, uh, or just basically the ability that, you know, he owns what you live on. Yeah. Yeah, there was a, uh, a conference on this called the Startup Societies Summit recently in San Francisco. And what they did is they looked at different different scenarios and different um, legal regimes uh, to use in these startup societies, whether it's on the ocean or on another planet or just a new city uh, on the land, for example. And, um, and there's a new book out. You probably should have this guy on the show. His name is Tom Bell, and he wrote a book called Your Next Government? Question mark, where he goes back to ground zero and says, all right, you know, if we, if we, get, to, if we get to think about what does our government look like from, the, from scratch, if we could start over, what would it look like? Uh, and it's a pretty visionary book. It's brand new. Um, I haven't got my copy yet, but it's in the mail to me. So um, uh, definitely something to consider for this show, given the focus of this, of, of this show and, um, you know, the public policy implications here. So, and, and here's one more question that you know I spend a lot of time thinking about. We talk about economics and morality, and a big part of morality is you know, you know, let's share the earth; it belongs to all people. You know, with with changes in the future, the idea of what is a person and what is you know kind of a man-made, you know, a, a construct that can think, can it feel? Can we ever know if it can feel? How how are we going to rethink? these kind of questions of morality. I, I, I don't know how, how much this uh, kind of, you know, we can even try to answer these questions now. Uh, do, you have, do you have thoughts in general about these really big concepts? Well, sure. Um, I don't know if you saw the news, but um, just in the last couple of weeks, there was a humanoid robot that was uh, touring around and was given supposedly citizenship 
in, I think it was Saudi Arabia. And this made a lot, got a lot of public, public, uh, public coverage saying, well, first of all, what does it mean to have, what do you get? If you're a citizen of Saudi Arabia, what do you get? And if the robot is reconfigured to be female, does that change? And a lot of jokes about that. But um, the fact is that I think artificial intelligence will someday, probably I think within my lifetime, I expect this, will start to try to convince us that it should have some rights of some kind. Um, I think that's going to happen. And and when you know when does it become immoral to pull the plug on an artificial intelligence? Um, you know, right now we erase them all the time. You know, they're not they're not right now they are not close enough to to human level intelligence for us to feel bad about erasing them. But that's going to change someday. So then you have to say, well, what rights should they have? And and then you get into sticky questions like, well, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to do voting rights for them in the sense that they can duplicate themselves infinitely. So if they get voting rights, they outvote the rest of us immediately. So how does that work? Um, well, and I don't uh, have just any yesterday answers. I was at a I was at a conference in at NYU, um, and the title of the conference was uh, Animal Consciousness and. You, you had all the big players in philosophy there, right? It was uh, basically being moderated by David Chalmers. Uh, Dan Dennett was there, uh, Thomas Nagel. And, you know, one of the questions they were asking was, uh, do fish uh, feel pain? And there was really no way to get around David Chalmers' idea of, you know, the, the hard problem of consciousness, right? And um, also one of the, the panelists, uh, Miriam Dawkins, I think the ex-wife of uh, Richard Dawkins, was there. And she just said, you know, like, we kind of need to, in some sense, ignore this question because I don't know if the two of you, like, if I'm being extremely skeptical, I don't know if the two of you uh, have consciousness yourself, right? The only reason I know I have consciousness is because I think, I'm having that thought, I think, therefore I am, right? But uh, it my takeaway from that conference is that we need to utilize a, a cautionary, a, a Bayesian principle, right? These things may develop some degree of, of sentience. And, you know, if we can all but avoid doing things that are, you know, going to cause such a being suffering, then then we really should. And uh, Peter Singer was there as well, and I was talking to one of uh his uh, students and she's actually writing constitutions at, at the moment, uh, mock constitutions that uh, describe in detail the rights that animals uh, would have if they were given citizenship on some level. Obviously, a horse shouldn't uh, be allowed to vote, but what rights do horses have? What rights should um, an artificial intelligence have in it? seems like one of them should be, you know, the right to uh, basic resources needed for survival. So, you know, water, earth, these, these things that are sort of like fundamental for, for existence. These are big questions. Um, you know, does an artificial intelligence, a very advanced one, not today's, but say an advanced one, does an advanced artificial intelligence have the right to electricity, right? To them, that's like food. Um, so, you know, but, you know, that means somebody else has to supply that electricity. So, uh, I don't have answers to this. And I think we're, fortunately, in terms of AIs, we're not there yet. In terms of animals, we're there. The animals exist already, and we have to think about how to treat them. Um, for, for human level AIs, we've got some time. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just right now, just right now, we're we're struggling with you know, different people from around the world needing resources, and we all know they're human beings. We all know they suffer, but we still have trouble just getting to a point of sharing. Yeah, I mean, you, you watch a movie like Blade Runner or something, the one that just came out, twenty forty nine, and you know, Ryan Gosling, he is a he's a robot in the movie, but he has an apartment, you know, and he is he's given all these things, you know, that I imagine he's treated the same in the society, but. And then he has a girlfriend who just exists in, you know, in the imaginary world. You know, she doesn't have. Yeah, I mean, and, and you, we don't know that he is suffering. We don't know really what's going on in there. But 
you watch a movie and you still can you still can feel for uh, a robot that may or may not actually have anything going on upstairs. I, I don't know. It's just it's it's very the ideas of morality. We don't really have the tools to deal with this now. But go back to your question though, saying like we we don't have the we don't have the urgency of dealing with these answers now. Do you do you feel we have the tools to ease ourselves into them, or I mean, do you think that's the best we can do is just talk about it, and we'll hopefully we'll come up with good answers? Um, right now, we're at the talking stage. You know, given how badly we're doing at other computation-related public policy issues, I wish I could be more optimistic on this. But even simple things like privacy and surveillance. Um, are, uh, even just computer security alone, are our computers secure? For example, um, are the computers that run the, um, our power grid, are they secure? The answer is no, they are not secure. They're not even close to being secure. They would be very easy to take down. And that would mean a regional blackout for not just weeks but months because it, you could take them down uh, using doing hardware damage. So... Um, so we have so many computer-related public policy issues that are being completely botched right now that um, I, I, it, it, it's, it's a little daunting, frankly. I was watching a C-SPAN last year, and uh, this is before the whole scandals and everything, but uh, James Comey was talking, just as his role is leading the FBI, about uh, yeah, uh, privacy and uh, encryption and he was saying, well, back in, you know, the old town, the sheriff, you know, he if he wanted to, he had a key to go into anyone's room. And if if everyone agreed, you know, he had the right to do it. And that's, you know, how society's been built is, you know, you have to defer to the sheriff. And it's kind of crazy. We're talking about how we deal with everything in new frontiers of technology. And we're still deferring to how the old West worked, you know, to say like how things should happen. And this is the reason the FBI is anti-encryption is because things should be more like the frontier towns. And it's kind of crazy, like that we are currently looking backwards for guidance instead of saying that this a certain level that this, this is going to stop making sense. Well, and, and it's already stopped because if you look at what China's doing now, um, they are using uh, they're using social media and surveillance to develop rating systems for their citizens, trustworthiness rating systems for their citizens. So, so this is very, very extreme dystopian scenario, and it's happening right now. So we don't, we don't, we don't need to read science fiction to know what's coming if we don't fix this. Um, I think I think this this, an, this analogy of the sheriff with the uh, with the keys to your house that's no different from what we have in the U.S. now, where they can get a search warrant if they want. The judge says, "Sure, go on in, see what's in there," but they can't read your brain. Uh, but but uh, and they they still they they still had the rules about um, the privacy of the males, right? The males are supposed to be private. But now they scan the outside of every letter you send, and they, they are still, I believe, they're still collecting the emails. So, you know, uh, I think things have changed, and we can't go by the uh, analogies with the sheriff anymore. You have to wonder, like, how much is just, you know, what tends to be common. You know, if people invented a brain-reading, you know, ray in, you know, 1200, we'd probably say, oh, of course people are allowed to read your brain. That's just, you know, that's one of the fundamental rights is they can read your brain if they have a search warrant. I mean, we have to answer, why is it a bad thing if people can read your brain? It's, you know, mm -hmm. no, nothing, right. nothing should be taken for granted in these big questions. I, I mean, I'm not totally against um, centralized power so long as there are checks and balances and a, a, a means for making sure that that power is exercised uh, appropriately. Um, so I, I guess it, it would be interesting to explore this issue with you, Christine, to what degree do you think we need to decentralize things in order to um, make them work well? Or, or is the question not even decentralization at all, but more what I, my position, which is that it's more about making centralized power act within the interests of, you know, morality. Interesting question. Um, I think 
one key point is can't, do people have the freedom to walk with their feet? In other words, um, that's one of the benefits. When you talk about centralized versus decentralized, it depends, it, it depends on how, how big are these jurisdictions and can you change jurisdiction. Um, it's hard to change countries right now. So that's why it's hard to walk with your feet from one country to another. Uh, you have to, if you're wealthy, yes, you can do it, but otherwise it's tough. So that one of the benefits of decentralization is that, in theory, if you push power down to its most local level, then if you don't like the way that power is being handled, it's not that hard to change cities, change counties, go between one U.S. state and the other, those are pretty easy to do. Uh, so that, that's, that's why I do tend to, to like the decentralization to the extent that it works. Um, that's a big debate. I, but, you know, maybe you could persuade me of the benefits of centralization. Well, one thing that I'm, you know, concerned about is uh, there's, uh, here's a scenario in which I like the centralization of power. Um, you know, you're, you're talking about uh you know, the South um, during the civil rights era, you know, the, the you know, the federal government had the ability to stop the Ku Klux Klan from doing bad. I mean, they didn't, they weren't always great at, at exercising that, but, but eventually that centralized power worked for good. If you decentralize power, um, I think that, and, and making, and give, putting hands in local, sorry, putting power in local hands, uh, one of the effects in this particular situation would would be to increase the power of, you know, the mob of the KKK. Uh, you know, it, it's it's sort of like with YouTube, right? Uh, YouTube is much more lax in their, I guess, Google is much more lax in their moderation policy than, say, Facebook, right? So mm-hmm. um, people can be, you know really abusive on YouTube. I, I remember that kid with red hair who they were saying had no soul. Um, and yeah, and, and this kid was just harassed constantly. But there's lots of examples of this, you know, on YouTube because of the the lack of, of moderation. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's, it's sort of this difficult trade-off between, uh, you know, if if the biggest kid in school is a nice guy, and looks out for everybody, then centralized power is a really good thing. If the biggest kid in school is a jerk, well, then, you know, we hope that there are, uh, you know, other fairly large kids who who will stand up for what's right. But in other words, it's not intrinsically good to have, you know, one biggest guy or like a good distribution of slightly smaller guys. It's, It's just, you know, does the power exercise itself in a, in a moral way? Well, we hope that we're going to have one Superman and he's going to be the, the nicest person in the world. But in reality, if you had one Superman, they'd probably be the biggest psychopath in the world. You know, it's, that's uh, not to derail that. Well, just to, just to agree with, what, with part of what you're saying there, um, one of the arguments for a limited government, uh, which I think actually supports what you just said there, Jacob, is that when government when the when the when the magnitude the number of the of the areas that government is supervising gets too large then the most fundamental functions no longer get the attention they need to have in other words the public and government officials uh, the well-meaning ones only have certain much attention they only have a certain attention span so if if the central government is trying to do too much then the core functions, like the one you just mentioned with the KKK, do not get the attention they deserve. So the argument then is to say, well, for things that aren't as critical, push them off onto the local level so that the things that are dealt with at the highest level are only the most critical things. Um, and then they'll get the attention they deserve. So, so I think there is a way to, ha- to have your cake and eat it too here. You can say, well... For deeply fundamental things, we, we, we want them to be enforced as widely as possible, so they tend to be more centralized. For things where we want experimentation uh, or things that aren't as critical, like the shape of toilet seats, which I understand does get regulated at the federal level, although I can't understand why that might be, um, 
maybe they could handle that at a lower level. So, uh, so there is a way to come at this, I think, that makes some sense. Yeah, you, you talk about you know the the laboratories of of local governments, and yeah, it makes you you know really appreciate you know people are going to make mistakes. I mean, Prop 13, we talk about how this can be deep, you know, can lead to a lot of bad outcomes, but I take a lot of a lot of joy in that it only happened in California and not the entire United States because uh, it's nice to know I can always walk out of California if I want. So I guess, you know, it's, it's, it is reassuring that we have the ability to kind of leave these laboratories. And I guess it's a question about kind of futurism and one issue that comes in economics a lot, closed borders. Are these compatible? Can we experiment for the future when we don't have, when people are locked in to arbitrary pieces of turf? Any, any thoughts about that? Yeah, that's, a, that's another tough one. And I think it's, um, if you ask the average person why do we have to have closed borders? Generally, which you'll, I think you'd get one of two answers. One is, well, jobs, they'll take the jobs. Uh, they'll drive wages down. And the other would be, well, welfare. You know, they'll go on welfare, and, um, and we can't afford it. So I think first we have to look at two, those two questions and say, well, is there any validity to these concerns? And if so, is there some way around it? Um, I think it's. It, I think it is true that if if you happen to be a low-skilled person in the U.S. Um, and you're making, you know, ten dollars an hour or whatever, and there's happens to be as there is not now. I don't think this is happening right now. But if there were for some reason to be a large increase in the population of of unskilled labor or labor which is unskilled in the U.S., no matter how skilled it was where where it was originally due to a language change. It's, it is possible that that $10 an hour could be affected by a change in, you know, it's that old argument in economics about um, supply and demand, right? There's, there's more supply, so um, the price would go down. So that person may, may have a legitimate concern, so we have to address that. Um, and then, you know, this other question of, well, are they going to be a burden on the welfare system somehow? So if we want people to be more interested in open borders, I think we have to grapple seriously with these concerns that they have and answer them honestly about it. And uh, if there need to be changes, we have to, we have to change them. Otherwise, those folks are going to continue to be nervous about the borders. I mean, it reminds me of the arguments made in uh, Henry George's book, Protection or Free Trade. That was a, a pretty futuristic idea at the time, that countries just treat everyone else, just trade, trade, free trade, let's, you know, we're only hurting ourselves. But he spends the second part of the book saying, but, you know, people, people feel threatened by this, and rightly so. He says that a lot of people, when they see trade, they realize that it might help in general, but they're going to lose their job. They're going to personally be hurt, and it's largely because you know existing uh, kind of strains on, on society. You know, differences between the landlord and and the tenants in the city, and the ability that yeah, you can't really bounce back if there's a structural change. And you know, he you know he tended to say you could really only make uh, big changes that make everyone richer if you really have a system that helps make sure that everyone gets the benefits. And I mean, I, I think it seems like one of the big ideas we focus on is how can you make a free world where things are changing work with a social safety net? And I mean, I think it might be, you know, the, the million dollar answer, land value tax of cities with a UBI redistributed within the city. I, I don't know. I mean, I, we see all ways cities go wrong, but I come time and time again of saying this might be you know, one of those really really big ideas. And I mean, I think there can be many, but I think that's one that I see time and time again. Well, we need big ideas, that's for sure. And I think um, part of our problem here is that we as a species are not evolved for the pace of change that we're going through right now. Um, If you look back on the history of our species, for the vast majority of the time, whatever your, your parents did whether it was make shoes or farm or be a hunter-gatherer or whatever it might be, you could do that. And your parents could teach you what to do, and then you could do that your whole life. You taught your kids, and that was it. Um, There were not huge, gigantic economic changes in your lifetime. 
um, you, if you had a skill, you could practice it your whole life. Now things are changing so fast, um, and people are having to to change their skill set and upgrade their skills so so quickly and so often in order to stay employed. We're we're not really evolved for this level of coping with change. Um, and I think if we want people to be open-minded about the future, we need to find some way to give them some security. As far as, you know, a person who looked at the past and also the future, that was a, a major influence on me. I was reading H.G. Wells' Outline of History. And it, it tends to talk about a fairly static world in which people just over and over again run into walls, hurt each other, kill each other for no good reason for thousands of years, you know, on and on and on. And you make you you really appreciate the lack of technology they had. You know, if the nuclear bomb existed, you know, in the days of squabbling feudal lords, I don't think we'd be talking today. Um, and now we finally have these big technologies, big change. Everything is changing, but it's not like our ethics and ways we interact have really changed that much since we did in Shakespeare's time. Uh, and now we have a lot of deadly instruments. And a lot of technology could be used for good or evil around us. How, yeah, how are we going to deal with this change? That's that's the big thing. It's a huge thing. And um, at least in terms of immediate survival, one thing that has to change immediately is we have to get better at defense because the offensive capabilities of small groups and individuals are increasing quickly. So if we want to have a stable society where uh, where we have physical security, for example, the, have the electric power stay on, we have to redirect our attention and say, hey, what are, our, what are our critical systems and how do we protect them from disruption by small groups or even individuals? Yeah, I mean, I, people say assassination right now, you know, you kind of imagine what it looks like. In the future, you program a drone, and a small thing comes up and, and kills you, you're going to need like a swarm of drone defense. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I, let's hope we just stop murdering each other first, maybe. It seems that our, our strategy for defending ourselves is, is one of offense, right? So, you know, create um, entropy everywhere outside the United States, keep, keep everyone there off balance and suffering and miserable. And that's the only way you can maintain, um, you know, extropy w within uh, the country. And it definitely seems to be Donald Trump's plan. Every time there's a terrorist attack or something bad happens, right? That's just uh, see, that's why I need to double down and uh, we'll regulate uh, immigration more. We will, you know, survey what citizens are doing more. Um, this is a very dangerous trend. Well, having seen so many presidents, um, I don't tend to focus on this particular one. You know, he'll have four or four years or eight years, and then he'll be gone. So, um, and that's kind of reassuring, and and that's true for all the presidents. So, what we can do is step back and say, all right, how do let's focus on the big picture. What are the big societal trends? You know, what's what is what is the world going to look like in eight years? Um, and how can we help make that work better? So, and that, that's one way to survive the current situation is to say, look, let's just focus farther out. So, uh, Christine, uh, you're, you're behind, you know, as far as, as great, great moments of branding, open source as being something which has gotten in people's heads and, you know, really changed the way a lot of people have, have viewed uh, this particular, you know, uh, software and technology. As far as giving hope to the future, how much do you think branding could really, you know, make a, a difference in how we could find hope or kind of find some sort of common, common way to get through this? I think it's critical, um, and here's how I think about it. First, you need to understand, you need to think about, all right, what are the good ideas out there? What, what are we trying to promote? Um, and then say, okay, how do we, how do we educate, the, educate people? How do we interest people in these topics? How do we get them to be excited and learn about them? And, and then you think, well, you know, what wording do we use? What, how, what terminology, what stories do we tell? What examples do we use? How do we, how do we bring people into, into the ability to think clearly about this stuff? And, and it, it's, it's absolutely critical to use clear, understandable wording that gets people to be interested in the topic. And that's why we, we and I wasn't the only one in this, 
we as a group um, back in the earlier days of free software felt, you know, free software has too much emphasis on the price. It doesn't really make clear that the purpose of it is to have more freedom to see the code, that the code was open. So that's why yeah, it's true that I happen to be the one to throw out that particular terminology, open source software, but but there, but quite a few people, I think, realized there was a problem there. And and that's one thing I've been bringing up about land value tax. You know, sometimes we call it Georgism, and I, no matter how much one likes uh, Henry George, it's an it's not an exciting term. It's not a modern term. It's 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 a boring term. And and you know, if he were here on the show right now, I'll bet you he would agree. He would say, "You guys, why are you using my name? I've been gone so long." Can't you find something more exciting to call this movement? So I've been on Jacob case, Jacob's case about this for a while, um, and I would love to have a meeting with you guys, and I would be happy to facilitate it, where we would brainstorm and go, let's. What should we call this? You know, what's the most exciting, sexy name for this that will really get people excited? Yeah, George himself. He the only one he actually in, endorsed was the single tax. He actually liked it because he felt like it not only talks about this one thing, but actually it kind of talks about how it's the only thing that matters. But I still don't think that single tax is a really a great piece of branding. I mean, I like it in the sense that it, you know, as they say, uh, moves the Overton window. Right? We don't really mean only this tax, but if you phrase it that way, you know, we may mean that it should make up. I don't know, 90% of revenue or, or something very high, right? So at least it gets you thinking about a simple, straightforward concept, even if uh, it isn't a perfect encapsulation of of the, the precise, you know, tax regime that we would ultimately want. But uh, it doesn't yeah. have to be perfect. It just has to be clear and interesting, intriguing. And I think single tax is kind of intriguing. I mean, people people don't like taxes. Like, oh, one tax? Okay, I, I can take that. It's it's it does have an initial kind of gut appeal to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and I, I think also we're talking about like decentralization of 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 powers to lower levels and experimentation and you know kind of a loose web. Like, does that have good branding? Because I feel like you say decentralization, people are like oh that's that's boring. That sounds like you know networking. You know, you talk about you know, you know sounds sp- academic, and you, you can't say stuff like small government because that's that's been owned by you know kind of southern bigots. You know, what what do you what do you do to kind of sell the positive vision of decentralization? Yeah, you're right. It's too long, and it sounds too formal, kind of academic. Yeah, it's not a good term. Um, I haven't been working on this one. <laughs> I'll have to put, you know, this is one of those things where you go think about it in the shower. Yeah. That's when these ideas come to you. So let's all go in, take a shower, and think about what is a better term for decentralization. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 branding matters. I wonder if we just need to, you know, kidnap a few of those uh, advertising people. You know, maybe they have, you know, <laughs> they have some good good powers up there. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so uh, yeah, one more time, we've been talking to uh, Christine Peterson of uh, the Foresight Institute, Vision Weekend. Uh, just uh, uh, another quick summary before we end up of what they'll be seeing on the 2nd and 3rd of December. Yeah, this is, uh, this is our, as you can tell from the title, Vision Weekend. This is where we look at the big ideas uh, in a highly interfa- interactive format with some very visionary speakers to inspire us. And then we tackle the big challenges, whether it's artificial intelligence or cybersecurity, longevity, uh, floating seasteads for future societies, you name it. We t- if, it's, uh, if it's coming science and technology and impact on the public and how do you guide it, we're taking it on December 2nd and 3rd in San Francisco at the Vision Weekend. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. Um, oh, it's been a blast. This has been the Henry George Program. Uh, you can find previous episodes of the Henry George Program on the website seethecat.org. This is a presentation of Case Issue Stanford. KCSU Stanford. This is the Henry George Program. I'm Mark Molyneux. I'm joined by co-host Jacob Schwartz-Lucas. This is a show where we look for practical answers to the Bay Area housing crisis and other questions of economic volatility worldwide. Today on the program, we have Christine Peterson. She is the founder of the Foresight Institute. 
which looks into future technology. She once coined the phrase, open source. On the 2nd of December, they'll be holding Vision Weekend, a conference with visions of the future. We'll talk about that throughout the show. But without further ado, welcome to the show, Christine. I feel like it's good enough. 